What's up, guys? Welcome to episode three of Midweek Matinee, wherein we are going to discuss the lighthouse, mermaid pussy, excessive drinking, <laughs> and all matter of shenanigans. I am your host for this week, uh, much to everyone's peril. I am Joshua Lago at Android is a loser on literally everything on the internet, uh, except maybe 4chan. Uh, I am joined by Blake. Hey, how's it going, guys? I'm also joined by Figs. Hello. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, our founding <laughs> father, the figure we all look up to, Brett. Those are high honors. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, the, the only honors I know of or care about are high. Um, so anyway, yeah, we're uh, going to just dive right into it. I guess uh, it's kind of tradition for us to start off with... What are everyone's initial thoughts before we kind of get into the deep dive? Uh, Blake, what did you think about this movie? Oh, man. This was my number one movie for last year. Like the, nice. It was my most hyped movie as well. So I should probably start out with that, that I went in with like extremely high expectations because mm. Robert Eggers, the director, his first movie is just one of my all-time favorites. Like it... Par- it I guess parachuted isn't the right word. It propelled to the front of like my all-time favorite movie list. So I had very high hopes for this one, and I think it lived up to all of the the hopes. I very much enjoyed this movie. Nice. So The Witch was uh, your favorite movie of all time, preceding you watching this. It's hard for me to say, like necessarily, what is my favorite of all time, but it is up there. It's you know top five. Okay. My list That's changes me. every day, you know. So <laughs> I, I feel I'm very you fickle. On that. It's hard to make an all-time list, you know? There's so many new things to check out, and, yeah, mood, I feel you. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, what do you yes. think about this movie? I liked, I liked it. I think I liked it more the first time I watched it, the second time I watched it. I was a little, I was a little ready for it to end, like, halfway through, but mm-hmm. it's still a great movie. It was in my top five for last year, but I think the second time kind of took more of a toll on me than the first time it did. <laughs> sure. Uh... Yeah, and then uh, Brett, your your quick thoughts on the lighthouse. I think that I'm going to probably be in the odd one out thing here. It's not that I didn't enjoy the movie. I think the movie is an entertaining watch, if not somewhat rough in a lot of ways. So, what I'm actually going and hoping for today is that you all convinced me that it's an even better movie than what I feel like I watched. Um, but of course we can sink into that as we get into the meat of this. Okay. So we're going to peer pressure your, uh, we're going to peer pressure Brett into liking this movie. Uh, or at least I do say that, that I don't like it. I just, I, I don't, I'm about 99% positive that I'm not going to see in this movie what y'all did. That's like it's, so it wasn't some huge problem of not feeling like I could finish it. I wanted to watch the entire thing, but it's a very obtuse movie. Sure. Um, Fair. So right. again, we can kind of talk about that. And I almost wonder if a second watch would make me like it more and maybe I would pick up on even more or if it would actually 
harm that experience. Like, you know, right. sometimes experiencing something a second time can actually diminish your feelings of the first. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I totally understand what you mean on the last part. And uh, to your first point, I've already unfollowed you on Twitter. So uh, let's <laughs> just move right on. Um, Blake, I, I think I'll, I'll go to you first since you've got kind of the, the most fanatical uh, opinion to represent here. Uh, what, what are some themes that stood out to you in this movie? Some scenes, just things that really made you like it as much as you like it? Um, the themes were kind of, they're, they're hard to pick up on in this movie just because it is so like maybe sporadic might be the wrong word but just it's very it seems slow paced but when you look back on it like none of the scenes were like incredibly long mm-hmm. they change a lot and they skip skip time a lot i mean they're supposed to be on the lighthouse for a month right what an hour and 10 hour and 15 into it they go to get on the ship to leave and it doesn't show up yeah mm-hmm. so it's not like i mean it goes very fast so the only themes I could really think of would be like maybe just like going crazy and you know solitary, just being alone, things like that. That's reasonable. Chris, a- any adding thoughts to that? No, not really. I think Blake kind of said it. I think the movie is long until the ending when you realize it was kind of short. If that makes any sense, like just the right. scenes and the way you're wa- the way they go. A lot of them, it's kind of like okay, I'm ready for this to stop. And then it, the next scene kind of hits you with something funny or interesting or intense. So it kind of switches itself up that way, which I enjoyed. Sure. I, I guess uh, a thing I would add to that is um, I, the pacing, yes. It, it's not in a hurry to win you over as the viewer. I, I definitely felt like there was... I, I felt like it was very intentional. I, I felt like there was a lot of use of space, use of pauses, use of kind of dwelling on certain things, uh, especially as we sort of... Because, I mean, I feel like we spend a lot of time dwelling on uh, Thomas or Winslow as we know him for some of the movie, although, honestly, it's it's, what, like 30 minutes into the movie before we even get, like, names of the two mm-hmm. characters we're following? Um, yeah, but Robert Pattinson's character, uh, if to me it felt like we spend so much time understanding his headspace by kind of seeing his day to day, seeing the the just grueling, unadorned hard work that he has to do, and the things that contribute to his gradual sort of being less like, all right, I'm here to do work, and more like, I'm kind of losing my shit here, guys. Brett, what do you think? You know, I'm a. I gotta say, I'm I'm a little disappointed in y'all's immediate responses uh, as to. I, I think Josh probably went the most into it, uh, and, and I really I only mean that specifically from the standpoint of going into watching the movie and kind of coming out of the movie. I was already aware of the fact that I felt like I was going to be probably the person who enjoyed it the least, while still enjoying it. Um, I don't know why, but in my head, I'd built up y'all's uh, uh, kind of opening responses to be something that would kind of make me understand very quickly why you felt the way you felt about the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's just that's a, one of those examples of building expectation. And I think that that's because I know that each of you had seen The Lighthouse before, and this is a rewatch, and I know that, of course, Blake was very big on it. But hopping into some of the things, like, you know, even though... I think the movie's a little weird in the way that it chooses to get there. Josh, something you said really stands out to me in that 
the movie uses a lot of time uh, letting you see the characters individually. Of course, primarily spending the majority of the time with Robert Pattinson's character, but still giving you some moments of Willem Dafoe um, and by himself as well. Uh, it's the, it's weird that the pacing seems so odd when it's focusing on the individual characters. There's some moments of like reward of, oh, here's something that's titillating that's kind of meant to pull you on and make you wonder what's going on. But there's also a lot of the times where it seems to move forward more when the two characters are brought together. And from what I was seeing, you know, and, and I don't know if that's a tell towards you know, looking at the themes of some of these themes are clearly inspired by just general stuff uh, in relation to what you would expect from a movie titled The Lighthouse. We see a lot of sea talk and sea stuff. Right. Of course, this is dealing with themes of isolation, which are very, very common amongst uh, sea, you know, the, the sea and um, you know, sailors and all that stuff. Definitely from further back in the day, that was kind of a, uh, a running thing that people who go out and see and spend time by themselves uh, get a sort of craziness that you see this movie tap into with like kind of tapping into things of the occult and the Mm -hmm. the mythical these are things that you often see in relation to water so i picked up on a lot of these themes it's just the way they chose to go about them didn't always hit me right Uh, and i Mm. guess that's kind of what gets me i feel like it brushes on a lot of these themes but some of them i feel like it doesn't really give enough payoff as to what the point of the theme being there was outside of this is a movie that has people who are dealing with water and somewhat sailor-like things so we're going to make sure we put all of these uh i'm trying to think of the word to use almost like milestones that you would expect to see like reference points you'd expect to see out of this type of movie right so i guess my big thing is i'm curious as to why these sometimes i think some of the themes it nails really heavy i mean like i think it definitely handles um the chaos and insanity aspect of of kind of loneliness and even though there's two of them they're still so disconnected from each other in society that they start to have a craziness that comes about them Mm -hmm. i guess what, what i'm kind of curious about and i'd imagine anybody else who watched this and maybe didn't immediately share uh the love that y'all had for it is what was it about the way the movie explores the themes that makes it stick with you so much? Or is it just a stylistic stick? Because I definitely will say the movie sticks with you stylistically sure. immediately. It's almost impossible for it to not stand out and hit you in the face. Of course. I was just going to say, I think for me, the biggest point um, is definitely the style of it. And just yeah. like everything from the aspect ratio to it being black and white to the incredible acting from both Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson and the music and effects. That's what really captured me into it. I think that Robert Eggers, between The Witch and The Lighthouse, he's just like the master of like period pieces. Yeah, I would It's just that. making you feel like you're in that era. You know what I mean? Obviously with The Witch, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's it looks HD and it looks like it's shot today. Because, I mean, there were no cameras back then. But with The Lighthouse, he used <laughs> cameras from that era. And they built a lighthouse from that era, and they built, you know, the house from that era. And so just in their accents and the way they dress, everything, it's just, I don't know, it felt perfect to me. Now, 
I, I love that you brought up timepieces because that's specifically one of the things that I think is the most gripping aspects of the movie. And one of my notes I put here is that timepieces and specifically ones that look at a specific way of life within the time, uh, you know, like this is very angled at one particular lifestyle within that time period. Um, and I always find them really interesting because you can see it in everything. I mean, the there's a much more involved acting process with this. Uh, there's, you know, with not only the lingo you know there's a lot of things that went into this movie of making sure that they're using the dialect of that time period and and words that you'd expect to hear at that time period but also having to sit there and actually focus and nail an accent that seems fitting for not only what their life and background would have been as that timepiece there's something about the believability aspect that comes with trying to make a timepiece if you do it successfully it's amazing just how well it can work because it can right. immediately suck you in and make you be like, oh, I am, of course, right now, back in 1930s or 1920s or whatever it may be. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a thing that I think ties into the feeling of it being rooted in a specific time and what made it impactful for me, especially on the first viewing, having no idea what to expect. And I think still on the second viewing where I can kind of pay more attention to additional details to kind of flesh out my idea of what's happening in the movie. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with that sort of uncertainty where I think true to the experience as well as true to the time of what the subject matter of the film is, these two people on an isolated lighthouse is that feeling of just total having questions and fears that you can't really get an answer to Mm -hmm. uh whether it's uh in limits of the time of just like you know a a lot of these you know these sea folklore elements existing because a lot of it is just like you're out on a boat for however long a period of time or you're stranded on a rock for however long a period of time and you don't have any way of like researching like are, are mermaids real or like you know is is cthulhu out to get me or you know however it is it's interesting seeing the way the human mind fills in the gaps when it doesn't know all the details and especially the way the human mind does that when it's under stress and i feel like whether that's ever verbalized or whether it's more just sort of felt and implied in this movie which is how i took it i think that's what made it so interesting for me is similar to what the witch does honestly where it's it's a lot of just sitting in that uncertainty and the way sort of over a long period of time when you sit in that uncertainty it kind of warps how you perceive things it warps how you uh you know interpret those noises you hear in the night or those things that happen that you can't quite explain uh that was what made it so exciting for me it wasn't so much uh to touch on what you were saying brett it wasn't so much that i was expecting to see like a big payoff of like here's some cool like monster scene or whatever but it was more like is this real is this imagined like i think leaving it in that sort of uncertain realm made it a lot more fun because then it's that element of like one you're horrified at what's happening and two you're not even sure if it's happening or if it's all just like you know tricks of the mind as uh willem defoe's character put it brett you said that it felt like he was touching on too many of the like the sailor tropes i guess like the mermaid and tropes is the word i was looking for all that kind of things but I wonder, and what Joshua said made me think of this, I wonder if that was a lot to do with him going crazy and, the, you know, the stories he's heard. You know what I mean? Maybe his mm-hmm. character had heard yeah. those stories growing up of, like, the sailors and the mermaids and going crazy and Cthulhu mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And so that was his mind, like, 
that's the first place his mind went when he started to kind of go mad yeah and i definitely uh, i see some of that and i think that that's a good point the only thing is that i feel like the movie sometimes fights my ability to kind of want to give it the benefit of the doubt of what it's trying to explore because as much as i think that would be a really interesting angle for them to do the the problem that i see is like okay that's that's a great explanation okay well we're starting to see him kind of you know like josh said we're seeing him go uncertain of all these things and seeing things and not knowing which is actually one of the things i love about the sea and how people choose to use this like a lot of the lovecraftian stuff does come from the depths of the unknown it's where the ideas of cthulhu and stuff come uh, it's very tied into themes of the ocean and islands and and you know isolation and weird stuff like that but um this movie one of the first things that it shows you is that he comes into this with the mermaid charm already there so it's like that it almost seems like the movie is setting up that he has other motivations for being there sure but again the movie never pays off on that i I feel like there's a lot of setup with a lot less payoff and i don't mean payoff in like big crazy scenes or monster scenes i just mean it in the sense of i don't often feel like the movie capitalizes on some of the more odd things that it sets up at least that caught my eye like you know i thought it was immediately interesting that we see um uh, robert pattinson's character since he has his two names but we see him immediately pull out uh the mermaid charm and then keep it and kind of decide what he wants to do and pulls it out but tries to hide it from willem dafoe so there's a lot of clearly there's something involving that and the movie does touch at least on some parts of it or some parts of the things that you see him doing uh like eventually we get some payoff uh in regards to why he chose the name he has and why he saw the the some of the weird stuff that he saw and some of the visions he was having uh but we don't get payoff specifically for the mermaid i feel like uh i i don't know like i said it's 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 a very strange movie because for as fun as it is it feels like there's very little that is cohesive hmm uh that what is cohesive is really well done but yeah i was just going to ask you to elaborate on that i was curious what you feel wasn't cohesive or what ideally you were looking for that you felt like this movie didn't quite like deliver i i guess a lot of it and, and i i think that you've touched on uh for me it's it's things like why does the mermaid hold so much weight to Robert Pattinson's character? Why do we see that at the very beginning? And why do we continue to see him have visions of the mermaid? Mm. And what does that pay any kind of, you know, is there, is there a reason for that? Uh, I would love for it to have been that he's starting to go crazy and lonely and miss people. And then he, then he becomes obsessed with the mermaid, but it's not, he already clearly has some obsession and connection to the mermaid that is never fully, and I don't even want to say explained because, of course, movies can explain things in ways that are not dialogue heavy. But I feel like the movie just doesn't touch on it much other than just being like, oh, by the way, we showed a mermaid charm in the beginning and we showed him beaten off to a mermaid charm. <laughs> oh, we're going to show you a mermaid. Okay. I wonder if the mermaid visions were because of the mermaid trinket. And, and again, I don't know. And, and I'm curious if I missed something in the movie. But as far as I could tell, he throws down his own bedroll. And the mermaid trinket is in his own bedroom, correct? Yeah. It, or okay, I wanted to make sure because I was trying to give the movie the benefit of the doubt in my head that maybe that wasn't his bedroll, and I had miss 
understood the scene and that he had he had felt in it and that maybe it was the uh, mermaid trinket or charm or whatever you want to call it uh, idol maybe even of the previous housekeeper uh, you know what I mean so See, that's what I was I trying to I, 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 I really don't think so he's throwing down his own bedroll uh, lays on it and it's almost like he I forgot that it. he chose to do it so but Chris what do you think technically we don't know if it's his bedroll but it's the bedroll that he rolls down and sits on originally. He comes in, yeah. he unrolls the bedroll, and he sits there, and he's finger-fucking the bed, and he finds the the mermaid thing. That's how I took it. But I assumed it was his bedroll. It could be William, Tom's bedroll. Other Tom, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, now, and I would totally feel that if the bedroll had already been laid down on the bed, and all he did was come in and lay down on it. But instead, you see him actually open the bedroll, spread it out, roll it out, and then lay no, it. I agree. And then it's not even like he finds the hole. It's almost like he d- is digging in so he can make sure he get it, because it was almost like his hiding spot to make sure that it got there, it got there safely and without anybody questioning I- him. Now... I, don't I actually know. did have that thought there when I was watching it. I was like, how exactly does he know that the mermaid thing is under there? Because it seems like he sits down and, like, kind of is like, oh, that's uncomfortable. And maybe he's sitting on it. But then, like, same time, he never moves. So it's not like he was sitting directly on it and realized that it was there. So that was one mm. thing I could never exactly. figure out was, like, how did he know? And he doesn't look surprised. He, it's not like when he finds it, he's like, oh my God, what is this? Instead, he like grabs it and he's like, oh, yeah, let me grab that and hide it. It's not like a wonder what this is here for. He immediately is trying to like grab it, make sure it's safe, and then kind of put it back somewhere where Willem mm-hmm. Dafoe's character does not see it. That's what I took it as. I'm, but that's one of those things. This movie uses very little dialogue, so a lot of it comes down to just what you think? expression within the, within the scene. Yeah. Um, I, I I'd be curious to hear Blake's thoughts on this. I on neither watching did I notice him lay out the bedroll. I thought that was there already. Uh, I and I didn't notice him roll it out either, either time. Um, but I'm not saying it didn't happen. I just just looked away at the exact same spot both times. I guess I'm not sure. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't notice that. I always thought um, that he just found it in the bed. That was my assumption. Yeah. And just for the sake of uh, articulating how it seemed on on my end, and I think this is interesting, maybe we'll have more moments of kind of discovering uh, little things that we took differently that maybe shaped our uh, understanding of the movie going forward. Uh, For me, him finding that in the bed was very much sort of like a moment of like uh, curiosity and a little bit of like horror. Uh, the way I took it, even if I, I don't remember if there was like a shot reaction shot sort of thing where we saw like his facial reaction to what he was doing, but uh, I don't know. There was something about like the hand movement and the way it was framed, and especially like there was like a little bit of music too or something. There was something that made it additionally kind of. It felt like he was finding something that he wasn't supposed to find. Um, That's how I felt. And I think yeah. that was what uh, made it stand out for me. Was like it, it felt like this kind of what the fuck is this like is this like hair like stuffed in the mattress and like maybe that's just like how like old school mattresses are it's just kind of like weird <laughs> shit and i'm i'm not an expert on bedding from the late 1890s or whatever it was um, wow dude go back to school god i'm canceled <laughs> um but yeah uh, i totally took it as him finding this thing and just being like what the fuck is this and then just yeah he finds the thing and then a thing that to me both times read as 
going from that curiosity and uncertainty to, okay, there's something weird about this guy that we're following, was him kind of looking around and deciding to like stuff it into his pocket. Uh, that's but how, just that's exactly how I felt too. So I think we all, like, I guess it's two against two, not like it's a competition, but that interpreted it differently. And that mm-hmm. is, it did kind of guide the way I looked at the rest of the movie as well. Yeah. Well, I think so. It's a pivotal scene, right? And I, I'm actually glad that I wasn't the only one that felt like it was his bedroll, though I do give the chance that it could have just been a bedroll that was already there. But I, I, if I want to go back and rewatch the beginning now, I'm pretty sure when you see Robert Pattinson show up, he's got a bag and a bed, and then he's got the bedroll rolled up with him. See, I'm I thought he just had the crate of stuff. I didn't notice the bedroll. So yeah, now I got to watch it again, or at mm. least the beginning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I want to watch the very beginning because. I feel like that may very well repaint the whole way I watched the movie because as Josh just described, I think that puts a lot of scenes in a much better context. Mm-hmm. And and what I'll really even say is like the scene I'm thinking of that would put it in better context is, you know, if if finding that had if if finding that had been like let's say that the the intention was supposed to be that it was not his bedroll and then he did find it. If that scene of him finding it would have been handled a little bit better, like Chris said, it's not like it's not like he laid down on something uncomfortable, scooched over to the side, looked at it, and was like, I wonder what this is, and then like pulled the stuff out and then kind mm-hmm. of looked, found it, and was like odd. I feel like if that was the intention, that scene for me could have been a little bit better done for you to read that, sure. considering that they chose considering that they chose to do it with no dialogue, obviously. Um, but it would completely reframe the way that I choose to see the scene that came later. Um, right where you see him sneaking up to the lighthouse after already clearly having suspicions of Willem Dafoe's denial of him being able to go up and see the light mm-hmm. where you see him have that glimpse of what, you know, the slime coming down from like the tentacles and then you see Willem Dafoe's character as what Robert Patton's character was viewing as some kind of eldritch horror essentially is the best right. way for me to put it. Yeah. I yeah. feel like the that would have framed that scene as the mermaid was the spark of curiosity, like y'all are talking about, and that curiosity, and then seeing how weird Willem Dafoe's character acts, uh, and how cagey he is about the lighthouse, would lead him to being like, well, what's up there? Go up there. That, you know, it's like, oh, okay. The one item sparked everything else, which is actually, um, you know, like Bloodborne does in the gaming world. Um, it's almost like you need something to give you the insight to see further within the realm of Lovecraftian beings and whatnot. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. Uh, I, that's going to be a really strong thing for me leaving this is rewatching the first to see if one realization can change my entire feelings about the movie. So sure. here's what I'll say. Yeah, that is interesting. Is I pulled up the beginning and I was watching it while you were going and Willem Dafoe there's the bed on the left or the right is already rolled out has a pillow on it so i'm assuming that's um defoe's Defoe's, yeah and pattinson's is rolled up so he unrolls that and finds it almost immediately did he carry it in or was he rolling it already so it was already on the bed yes so my question is if you sat on a bed and there was a hole like would you stick your finger in to see what was in the hole no absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not a chance. If you go to a place that you know lonely men spend long periods of time, are you going to assume a hole in a mattress is from anything other than fucking? That's it? what I thought he was going to do with it the first time I watched it. I'm not even like joking. Well, that's what Defoe did later. 
Yeah. When he was <laughs> fixing the roof and he looked in the hole in the roof, Defoe was fucking his mattress. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, that's a callback. Um, I actually, I, I, I'm glad you said that. I had very little understanding of what happened in that scene. Like, it happened, I looked at it, and I'm like, what is going on here? Oh, he was fucking that and, bad, dude. Good for him. <laughs> and I, I feel like... <laughs> Uh, was he fuck? Hold on. So was he fucking Robert Pattinson's bed? No, I don't know. They probably both or, had a hole or his own. I don't know. He was in his. It own It looked bed. like his own because I saw the wall on the the far side. Mm-hmm. So I assumed okay. it was his bed, his own bed. But yeah, so if the bedroll was already on the bed. I assumed that the mattresses were like. I mean, if they were rollable, they probably like washed them or something. I guess I'm not sure. Who they knows? Were very That's thick mattresses. Uh, that's maybe very him interesting. just sitting so he, down was like, you know, and maybe he just started seeing what was in the hole. <laughs> Not that I would do maybe, that, but I mean, <laughs> obviously he did. <laughs> well, you know, some plots, uh, some plots write in actions that are specifically just to move the plot along. So sure, sure. <laughs> we and don't have to understand the character's motivations for the actions. We just have to know that the action was needed to spur the rest of the movie. Yeah, I didn't remember him carrying the bedroll or anything as well. So. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that's just a point of contention for the moment, I guess. And that goes to show you how assuming can happen, because the reason I, I I think I projected him carrying the bedroll, and I wasn't completely sure on that one, it just was kind of like a, oh, well, he set it down and unrolled it, so sure. why would he do that if it wasn't his that he had carried in? Yeah, um, right. So, yeah, again, I guess it's just a, I wish that that scene would have been handled a little differently. I think it would have definitely changed like you know let's say that the bed roll is already on the bed that single simple change already rolled out on the bed would have been enough for me to have viewed that scene entirely different and, and possibly the whole paint movie. my viewpoint mm-hmm. yeah. yeah exactly it's yeah. like i have to think about the fact that i've watched a movie from an entirely potentially i guess it is misguided standpoint because one scene in a movie that seems like it's got a lot of very purposeful scenes it, it's hard for me to want to say that that being pre-rolled up does not have some significance. Right. And a, a thing that uh, I, I kind of realized after my first viewing that I think applies to a lot of these moments that we're talking about where we have either different interpretations of them based on things that stood out to us or whether it's just sort of the ambiguity of the scene. Uh, I feel like this movie gaslights the viewer. Uh, in a way that honestly parallels uh, what we see. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the movie, so I guess it's not really like a spoiler to kind of visit something that happens later on in it, where uh, Robert Pattinson's character is essentially fully lost it, and Willem Dafoe's character is not just going, man, you've really lost your shit, kid, but then he starts like kind of fucking with him, and he's going like... He, he's kind of like uh, giving him misleading details of like how long we've been here, and like... I felt like it was never clear, even as the viewer, what exactly has happened, what exact things have happened in specific moments, how long they'd even been there as far as like the, uh, the, the later part in the movie where it's like, okay, now we're in stranded on the island and we don't know when rescue's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So I think that's a thing that plays to a lot of what for me made this movie so interesting was just trying to figure out what's happening because our narrator is extremely unreliable and our point of reference seems to be using that to his benefit so we never really have an extremely accurate representation of what the fuck has actually happened here 
Right. Yeah. See, that's the thing for me is that I actually do. I, that I agree with the fact that that's why the movie is interesting and fun to watch. Like it's enjoyable to watch because you're constantly in a state of slight confusion that you're constantly looking for something to help you understand and ground you. But it's like you never quite grasp something that actually does that. Uh, I don't. I think the only way I, I kind of disagree with you is I don't feel like there is a touchstone frame of reference for time. I, I'm actually like across the board. I don't know that I, I agree with the unreliable narrator standpoint. I think that's a, a huge uh, factor in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't, I feel like there's no one actual thing that you can tie to passing of time it's almost like time is such an odd construct within that time and within watching that movie because it spends no time giving you anything that can actually be an adequate measure of time i actually have a few things that i for me i agree with that in the third act i think up to that point uh them at the dinner table each night is and granted it's not like we see every single calendar night but I think them at the dinner table is our most accurate kind of representation of uh, time moving on and their conversations because we see how things progress and especially uh, they're sort of like last supper together uh, when uh, Robert Pattinson's character is like call me Winslow because um, that, that's like I think it's uh, Blake maybe you'll remember uh, whether it's their last night together or whether they're approaching like their last week or something um, was, anyway um it was weak because he, when he says Winslow, he asks uh, Willems the folk character. He says, "You know, for my, it's like a week or even two. He's like, you know, mm-hmm. for my last week or a few weeks here, one of the two, sure. I would, wa- I want you to call me by my name instead of, you know, um, yeah, it was last what? week, last two weeks. So mm-hmm. it was yeah, a midway point because they were there for a month, mm-hmm. and so we know that a month passed when they were standing out there with all their stuff waiting for the boat. But right. after that, we don't know how much time has elapsed." Well, yeah, but there's a there's something that comes up that again, because you're watching a movie that's so crazy, and I'm also trying to take notes. And this is a movie I had to pause occasionally to take notes, sure. so that I would not miss certain things. Um, shortly after that, like you know, they're kind of getting together and looking, and then Willem Dafoe's character, and this might speak to what Josh was talking about. Maybe he's using it to his benefit to just mess with him um, for whatever motivation he may have to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not long after that, Willem says something that alludes to the fact of it seems like it's just been that day of, oh, hey, they didn't come like we thought they were supposed to. But then Willem's like, it's been weeks since they were supposed to come pick yeah. us up. Yeah. Like almost immediately. And then you're like, wait, what the fuck? what do you mean it's been weeks yeah yeah and he's like i've been asking you to ration this whole time yeah again the movie as much as i i hate the word gaslight as it's traditionally used in modern day stuff where it's (laughs) just everybody's throwing the word around haphazardly in a way that sometimes doesn't even make sense sure that is actually a very adequate use of the word because it's the movie's constantly trying to trick you the viewer into doubting how much time has genuinely passed and Mm. whether or not you can believe either of the characters. It's almost like they ping pong between who you're supposed to find reliable. Mm -hmm. And in the moment you start to kind of trust them, they immediately make something happen that makes you go, I don't trust them at all. Yeah. And and I mean, to kind of just agree with uh, part of Brett's point there, I think that's what makes it so interesting is like, yeah, you're trying to find like who you agree with, like who to like empathize with. And it's sort of interesting that like, 
it, it really is not consistent at all. There are bits where you empathize with Robert Pattinson's character. There are bits where you're horrified by him and you empathize with Willem Dafoe. And it's, yeah, it, it really is such an interesting back and forth. I was going to say, before we got too far away from it, um, when you were talking about when Willem Dafoe's character was questioning Robert Pattinson, you know, how many, how long have we been here, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, you were asking, um, is he trying to make him mad? I wrote that exactly down. I was like, is he making him go mad or is he testing him to see if he's going mad? Right. You know, like and asking I- him, hey, how long do you think we've been here? But with his yeah. accent and his weird slang, maybe it just come <laughs> off more of like, menacing i guess <laughs> for lack of a hmm. better word i mean just from his face i completely read it as like he's he's in control of this and he's enjoying kind of fucking with him a little bit sure i think that that may at least be a part of it but i do agree with blake in that it, it adds more to the what exactly is going on and who do you believe aspect because it's again you kind of look at that and you you do you're like well okay is he messing with him a little bit and like kind of jokingly saying like hey how long have we been here just to see what kind of answer he's gonna get and like kind of doing it in a weird way mm-hmm. but also with the intention of it also being like a back-end test of like well depending on what he says depends on how crazy he's become um and and that's assuming that willem's character is not crazy you know and that constantly that back and forth continues to happen um like after and, and again you're left with the unreliable narrator scene because uh, very within, within all that same time period within the third act um, you have the scene where Robert Pattinson's character chases or really I'm sorry Willem Dafoe chases Robert Pattinson's character with an axe and then once the axe is down Willem Dafoe says you just chased me through the house with an axe yeah mm. and you're like wait what the fuck there's, okay, is that actually what happened? Yeah. Like, you know, are we are we seeing like is the point of it showing it being Willem chasing him? Is it supposed to be like an actual play of like Robert Pattinson's going so crazy that he's viewing his actions in a distorted manner? Right. Or is it meant to be this play of I'm trying to mess with him further or that they're both equally crazy and that you're constantly watching events that you can't be for sure are happening at all. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the second one, honestly. I remember when I left the movie the first time I was seeing it in theaters, I had read about it, and they were talking about how they believed that like one of the characters was dead, like I guess at the halfway point. And I think the movie kind of shifts its tone <coughs> after they uh, miss the boat. So mm. to me, I think that Willem Dafoe's character died at that point. Um, somewhere there and it kind of made Thomas go crazy the other one Um, and that's kind of where I think it is you know looking at some of the influences of the movie you know like the there was the I should should really have looked up the name before I started speaking on it but there was something (laughs) in this similar scenario happened in a lighthouse in like 1801 where one guy died and the other one went crazy and to me it kind of seems like telling the same story with you know he was already kind of crazy. I think that's kind of where the the mermaid doll and all the mermaid visions come in, where it's like he, he's already kind of insane, and he went over the edge when you start mixing his friend dying and him starting to drink kerosene because he's got nothing else to get drunk off, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, Robert Pattinson's character saw the mermaid, what, 
it seemed like it was the first night. Obviously, yeah. we don't have a real grasp on time, but it was very soon. Mm-hmm. Right. It seemed like it was that first night when like he was walking out to the water and all the logs started separating and there was a dead body and then he went into the water, you know. Yeah. So Yeah, but that's also shown as a dream sequence yeah, almost. Uh, but again it leads to the point of was it or was that a hard cut to him yeah, suddenly exactly. waking up from something that actually happened and it goes back to the unreliable narrator thing the the movie right. constantly leaves you guessing and look too much into it because i saw it before i saw the movie unfortunately but it was um possibly that pattinson and um defoe's character are the same person yeah i could see that and that he's alone. That as well and that uh because yeah. you know you find out three-fourths way through the movie that his name is also actually thomas right mm-hmm. you know they say they have different last names or whatever but um it's just really weird i don't know there's a lot of stuff that like you don't catch until the second time you watch it and i'm wondering what i'll catch you know the third or fourth time <laughs> yeah, yeah i definitely catch the uh, both of them being named thomas and i actually made the same connection in my head of there is very mm-hmm. likely that we're seeing two sides of the same brain and essentially someone trying to cope with loneliness and getting even crazier as the time goes on because right. they've created this uh, fictional person in their head who is essentially them, and you're starting to see that um, creation collapse in on itself, essentially. Uh, as they go further insane, they can't keep it up. Yeah. So you start to see things happen in a very odd way. And sure. the only thing that took me... Oh, away from that uh theory is in the beginning because you see two people leave the lighthouse at the same time that they get there mm. and so i mean that could totally be imagined as well i mean who knows what's real in this movie or and what's not real but that's true but any of you can confirm this the movie acts as though and again this might be a thing where for some reason the way i was watching it kept painting the way i was expecting things to go i thought the movie had set it up that willem dafoe's character had been there this entire time or at least for an uh, for a very elongated stay and that robert pattinson's character was just the next person to come and help keep the house alongside him definitely because the movie touches on the fact that uh, it, he's dropping off Robert, and then you see Willem Dafoe's bed, and everything's already there set up. His piss bucket and everything is there. <laughs> and then later in the movie, Robert Pattinson finds the the head and everything, and says, "Aha! I know what you've done. You killed the last keeper. He right. didn't, you know, he right. didn't." The just only thing die against that again, though, is the two people leaving when they arrive. And I didn't notice that the first time I watched it. I didn't know. But there well, are two, two people, people walking leaving. away right when they walk up, and then they both stand there and like smile at the camera. Like, you know, Pattinson and Defoe. Mm. So I don't know. Mm. Again, like again, what's real or what's not real? You could be totally right that that you know that was imagined or whatever. Well, and don't we see them both the on the person, boat? But do what? I, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, don't we see them both on the boat, like? kind of at, like as they're approaching the island because like don't don't we get a shot of like their feet on the the deck of the boat um you know i'm really i almost wonder if this movie's arraigning like all this like very crazy pacing and back and forth and making you doubt yourself i almost me- wonder if this movie 
has actually made me view the beginning of the movie differently than I did. Yeah. I swear it was just Pattinson who just got off. Now, of course, we know that Figs just rewatched the beginning, so he can be our uh, our test for this. But <laughs> I swear, I swear that I viewed everything from the fact that he had already been there. Mm-hmm. Robert Pattinson came separately. Well, no, they were both carrying the crates of They're stuff. Definitely both in the beginning. at the beginning. Huh. Yeah, but were they both on the boat? That's going to be very important because I yeah, took Willem sure Dafoe's. Th- the they are. Yeah, I took Willem Dafoe carrying stuff. Again, I say it's like I can't remember him being on the boat. I took it. It's very odd how I framed this movie for myself. I almost feel like I I absolutely have to watch this another time. <laughs> I t- I took it as Willem's is coming and helping getting supplies because it's part of what the drop off was. Not only are you getting a new person, you're also getting. Uh, you know supplies that you need and that's Maybe clearly so. mentioned throughout the story and, and i'm not saying i'm right but again that's right. it's it was logical enough for me to follow it right but that still doesn't explain the two people leaving unless there was three people at one point you know mm. so or well, the dead body or the dead you know the dead head whatever what the I'll say severed is head interesting is i'm i looked at the beginning willem dafoe and robert pattinson are definitely both on there but going back to them you know maybe being the same on person the boat. on the boat right at okay. the, right at the beginning. Okay. But they're they're moving the exact same way, like with the the motion of the boat. And you could say that oh that's the motion of the ocean, whatever. They're I was just say, well you have to row the same way, right? Well they're not rowing. They rowing? They're, they're standing oh, okay. at the beginning and like it, Why do I not remember this? They're scene? swaying like together and they're both yeah. swaying in the exact same way. Like huh. it's hmm. completely in sync. And I remember noticing that when I watched it today, but like Looking at it right now, it's like back, forth, and it's all together. Even when they slow down, when they start speeding up again. So it, that could just be something like, oh, they're in the middle of the ocean. Obviously, they're going to be kind of going the, where the waves buffet them. Right. But you'd still, you wouldn't be totally in sync no. with somebody. No, and what I'm looking at now... Because one's taller than the other, too, so they would have different like, equilibriums and right. stuff. Right. Exactly. Mm. I didn't even think about you that. You there's a, there's another inconsistency with that, which I think, again, it's not an inconsistency in the sense of you normally look at in a movie of like, oh, this was an oversight mm-hmm. that they were just not smart enough to write out. Doesn't it seem odd that they would not introduce themselves to each other the entire boat ride? Yeah. To this yeah, remote island? Weird. Yeah. A little, but, but also like, these also are sailors. for two weeks. So... A boat ride isn't much different than living with someone for two weeks before you learn their name, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, but their first night there, they at least had a, a conversation, a real talk, of sure. like a, a little bit of an understanding of who was who. And mm. I think another thing that lended credence to my thought well, that Willem had always been there, though you could very well see it as just uh, he's clearly someone who's been here before, mm. if you wanted to look at them both arriving at the same time. Yeah. It's just his his mastering and expectation around everything that's going on. I think uh, he's just know, been doing he, that for a long time. Exactly, but it's like he knows that one so much to the point that he also is so protective and guarding of the light. Like I guess, again, it's it's the characters are so strongly written into the way that they are for the for the two thirds of the movie before things really hit the fan. Right, that it feels like to me, I have a hard time feeling like Defoe's character, if he is a real character would be willing to relinquish the light duty to anyone else if he won't even let the person who's staying there with him do no, it. No, I don't think he would. But I just think that when there's someone else there, when he's there, he just wants the light to himself. Yeah. 
but I, I, maybe, mean, I don't know. Maybe, but he's so adamant and weird about it that he seems like someone who would have an odd protective nature against it to the point yeah. where he wouldn't even let anybody come and willy-nilly well, yeah. do it. But I don't know. I mean, I that's a lot of that is he had the same kind of thing that Pattinson had for the mermaid or siren or whatever it was because he, he ruined his marriage over the light. So clearly he has this like, I don't know if it's a fetish or whatever it is, but like, well, I think that's the way to word it considering the way they showed it over. Um, he was a, a seaman at the time. He was no. a, a oh, sailor. That's correct. Did, did he, he said he was gone for 13 Christmases. Here. Yeah, I assumed mm-hmm. he was gone for 13 Christmases watching the light. The, no, the he, said, he was talking about he was a sailor at the time, but he hurt his leg oh. or whatever, so he couldn't yeah. do it anymore. Took an arrow to mm-hmm. the Which then the movie also questions his leg. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because so, why not? So why who knows? You so you could be right, Chris, but that's not what he said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you could still be right because who fucking knows? Right. I, I just missed <laughs> Because he's a walking videos. contradiction. Yeah. But I will say uh, so quick. Um, Go ahead, Chris. Just before we kind of move on to a completely different train of thought, I wanted to say something about the the name thing because I actually, mm-hmm. unless I'm wrong, I don't actually think it's that weird that we didn't see themselves introduced to each other because I would have to imagine that Pattinson, I, mean, I guess this is a 21st century way of thinking about this, but I have to imagine that Pattinson applied for the job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So... Yeah. Unless Willem Dafoe's character is only on the lighthouse and didn't meet Pattinson, which we already know is false because they were on the boat together, you would think that they met at that point, and that's why they didn't need to introduce each other, introduce each other to each other. But that's why when he goes, "My name is Tom," and Dafoe goes, "No, your name is Ephraim," or whatever it was, um, mm-hmm. that's why he already they already know that. Because they didn't really sure. introduce themselves to each other. Robert Pattinson introduced Willem Dafoe to his true self, but he already knew a name to call him. You know what I mean? That's why we never find it out, because they already knew it. Well, I, I mean, mean, I don't know that I follow you on that one, because I thought there was a clear discussion between the two of, hey, I want you to call me by my real yeah, name. Yeah, his real and name he is says, Tom. Oh, what's your real name? And he says, well, no, this is when he introduces himself. We don't have a name at all for either character at the beginning and then we go through and we don't get a name for robert pattinson until the night where he says i want you to call me by my name but he introduces himself in that segment as ephraim winslow but just call me winslow but later in the movie they have a very similar conversation of essentially hey i've lied to you my name is actually tom right Right. when he spilled his beans yeah i was waiting for actual (laughs) beans to spill because the trailer but man, no no beans, <laughs> <laughs> no beans whatsoever. Yeah. Zero out of ten. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, fuck. I had a thought on that and I forgot it. But I do want to ask. Um, I want to ask what you guys thought of uh, a specific moment that stood out to me as far as wondering how real the supernatural elements in the movie are, or conversely, how much of it is just in the minds and the perception of the characters are following. And that moment is after he kills the gull and the winds immediately change. We sort of follow the camera. Uh, it's like up the, it's either up the lighthouse or up like the side house, man, we're just not remembering any specific details and clarity. Um, <laughs> so it, yeah, so uh, many different scenes. It was it's impossible. It was, up, 
it was up the lighthouse because I know we're not at that part of the show yet, but that was one of my favorite visual scenes mm-hmm. is you see, and it's, it's more than just what it was visually. It was also like thematically. It's like at that part of the movies where you start to really see Robert Pattinson's character break. Mm-hmm. And it's like that one act of brutally overkilling the goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the camera, without cutting at all, pans over to the corner of the building yeah. before climbing up the tower and going all the way up and building to the wind vane without a single cut and then letting the wind vane turn. Uh, there's definitely... That was one of those strong, like, there's, there's thematic nature here. Mm-hmm. There's strikingly visual aspects on, at play here. Uh, the soundtrack was fantastic for that part. Very ominous going to this and clearly acting in a sense of where it felt like, oh, here's a change. Mm-hmm. And I love because it's, you know, it, it goes back to the metaphor of a, a change in the winds, uh, but very literally in this particular sense. Right. Um, yeah, there was a lot about that movie, about, about that and that's when we start to see things really become super odd between them. So I think some of the supernatural stuff is definitely real. The seagull is definitely like actual supernatural stuff. Whether or not the siren and stuff is, I can't say. But I think that the seagull is the ghost of the other older guy. And I think that was the point of showing us the, the head right because mm. both of them mm-hmm. the seagull and the head are missing the same eye so i think that's like mm. it's pretty clearly there to imply that the huh. spirit of the old lighthouse well, keeper is yeah. in the seagull that he and kills. the description became that yeah the seagulls carry the the souls of a lost See, I right. that they were missing the same eye i mean i did yeah. too i, saw I actually it on didn't IMDb, notice that so well. i'm not like this film oh, okay genius, but <laughs> Oh yeah. really? I, I caught that the first time, no, I and I it. and be, and it made uh, it, it, at first it struck me as just a weird coincidence when I and and then I thought back. I was like, wait, no, Willem Dafoe specifically right. says that the, the reason you don't souls. do it is because it carries the souls of yeah of of seamen. And I thought that was really Did a, he say a, an interesting pirates. No, he he says, he says men seamen? of the sea, okay. something men along sea, that. Okay. So and I think that that also includes people who would keep the lighthouse because if you kind of think about it, they treat definitely Willem Dafoe's character treats that as something that's so mm-hmm. important to the seafaring ways. Yeah, that definitely. Even if you're not directly on the ship, you are no less of a of a, of a member of a, of the sea, For uh, sure. and it carries a lot of the same. Actually, I, I wrote that down here. Um. And so, and one of the theme things that I thought are not even, I don't know if I call it thematic, but I thought it was interesting that the island setting in some ways is a reference to like people being out on the sea, but at the same time, it's almost like an extreme version of that because an island is like only furthers the isolation of the sea because a boat is a moving home that offers the ability to eventually land somewhere else. But an island is an immovable rock of isolation, mm. and I, I, that was one of the things that tied into, like you know, my my first way that I essentially worded what was going on within this is that the sea is often tied with the occult and insanity, 
does this go back to superstition that was built on the unstable mindset of men or a man who's been isolated for too long? Or is this due to the mysteries of the sea to this day eluding us that build to a fear of the unknown that the sea becomes too intertwined with these things? Um, Because, and that was, I actually typed that out really, really early in the movie because the movie takes no time in immediately making you question the sanity of people going on and right. of course the looking and teasing into things of the occult before eventually wholeheartedly going into them for well, small segments of scenes you know yeah and Patton's mm. char- Pattinson's character seems like immediately disgusted with Thomas from the beginning like not necessarily from the boat ride and all that but from the first dinner before Defoe even speaks like the way he just he looks up at him He's just in disgust mm. at the way he's eating, the fact that he's drinking alcohol, and it just goes on from there. I mean, every time they're together, besides when they're they finally get drunk and dance and sing and all that stuff, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, one thing that popped in my head that I kind of want to bring up while we're still relatively close to when we said it, uh, you know, we were recently talking about the seagull scene where Pattinson's character breaks and viciously murders the. <laughs> the uh seagull um i feel like what we end up learning later in the movie of how robert pattinson's character ended up murdering uh the blonde haired man that we see from the beginning in the visions because you know what you talked about the mermaid showing up in the visions very early uh the visions early as we continue to see them kind of get expounded on all include the the blonde haired man that we never we, we we never got a name for until it was revealed that he was Ephraim Winslow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I wonder is you know is the seagull just Robert Pattinson's character breaking again the first time that we see it within the set of the movie, but the second or potentially more times of him breaking as an individual and acting in very harsh and violent response Mm -hmm. to something happening. Um, You know, the the movie kind of sets him up as someone who has the potential to being, it's funny that the movie wants to try and like you just mentioned, have the scene of he's disgusted that he's drinking alcohol and like he read the rule book. So you're supposed to see him as like this straight man who's going on, but then the movie eventually kind of tells you, oh no, he's someone who suffers from a very extreme PTSD, but also the extreme ability to be incredibly violent from what we understand, at least if we believe it, what he did way prior to ever coming to the lighthouse. So, yeah. Um, I'd be interested in moving to uh, scenes that stood out to everybody, unless anyone had any closing thoughts on that subject before we move on. No, I think uh, we pretty much wrapped it up, at least in my opinion. Oh, um, one thing that kind of ties into a lot of this, but we've already brushed on a little bit. Mm. Um, there are two things that are specifically closer to the beginning of the movie. So the first thing I noticed is that there is absolutely zero dialogue until about seven minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting about that is that, of course, this movie's talking about isolation. And I feel like the movie focusing so much on two characters and very little dialogue and waiting this long to give you any dialogue uh, after also having minutes of the routine bellow noise 
that was that was going on you know the oh, yeah, yeah. you kept hearing that yeah you'd hear it over and over and it to me it like set the tone for like an uncomfortable tension that Absolutely. the rest of the movie really utilizes through not only its visuals, its story, its dialogue, and uh, uh, the score as well. You see the you hear the bellow come back and be not only a noise of contention, uh, but of course, n- not even to just us, the listeners, but it becomes a noise of contention to Robert Pattinson's character. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I thought that was a really interesting choice, and I, I felt like it was trying to make the 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 viewer as uncomfortable with the with everything coming in mm-hmm. as the people clearly were you know the beginning you see robert pattinson very uncomfortable and untrustworthy of yeah. willem dafoe and you see willem dafoe untrustworthy of robert pattinson mm-hmm. right and kind of a going between those two things uh and in that same thing the very first str- line of dialogues are the lights excuse me lines of dialogue that we get uh immediately set a power structure in place uh so it almost the first thing that we hear to their mouths is a distribution of duties despite the supposed intention from or if nothing else the um, insistence from Pattinson that the duties are supposed to rotate and be interchanging shifts but Willem Dafoe immediately comes in with the power structure that he continues to hold throughout the first two thirds of the film Mm -hmm. of no I guard the light. I do the light. You're here for this, this, and this. And Willa, I mean, and Robert Pattinson's character constantly questions that. So those are probably the last two things that I really wanted to talk about that I thought were interesting. Yeah. Because they're both things that continue to, for me, I felt like I continued to see them be utilized throughout the entirety of the movie. And I love when movies do the thing of setting an an expectation for tone that they constantly tap into. Yeah. Uh, to kind of create a flow within the film. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Blake, you got anything to add to that? No, I was just saying I agree. The music effects and the horn in the beginning that goes on for seemingly minutes and minutes and minutes. It, yeah. It works perfectly, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, a, a lot of elements aesthetically, both uh, visually and sonically, I, I really loved about this movie. Uh, and that intro sequence is a fantastic example of that where it's all the choice of shots the uh the the framing of the shots the the really menacing sound effect of you know that this really intense unpleasant horn uh you know like brett said it definitely was very unsettling unpleasant uh you know kind of like unnerves both the viewer and the people in the scenes but some other stuff that I really loved is just the way a lot of stuff looks, the way it was shot. And I'd be really curious to uh, look up what specific uh, cameras were used for this. I know it was something very kind of old school and uh, atypical, but uh, I just, I, I loved the way a lot of the scenic shots looked, just the way they were filmed, like the close up of the front of the boat cutting through the water. And especially a lot of like those night shots that we saw of just like the waves crashing, like those looked so cool. And there was an almost like, I don't know. There was something that almost looked like composited or fake about those shots, but in like a way that like mm. just seemed like it was an artifact of how it was shot where I'm just not used to seeing it shot that way. And something about it made it very kind of just uniquely a little surreal, but also just really visually appealing to me. Yeah. I tied in 
one of my first questions going into this, and I don't know how I missed this because I watched a trailer for this. Me and Blake were discussing this movie a lot before it yep. came out, mm. and I thought it looked really interesting. Um, I don't know why, but I'm sure one of y'all can tell me because I haven't gone back and checked. I was under the impression from the trailers that this was shot in 16.9 for some reason. No, it's 1.191. Uh, okay, interesting. Because yeah. I was, I, I didn't know if it was. I, I marked it down as four three, but I didn't even think about it. It is almost a perfect square. Yeah, yeah. four three is a little almost. more interesting. So, so yeah, that was my bigger thing. Is I didn't know if it was actually shot in that na- that native aspect ratio, or if they used newer cameras with specific things and no, he, he actually filmed it in sixteen nine a Panavision Millennium XL2 camera that was equipped mm. with a vintage 1930s Baltar lens and a black and white Eastman XX 52-22 film with a custom short pass filter. That's I don't know amazing. What half of those words means, but yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I know some of it. Uh, not a, not nearly enough. Uh, but that really. That's that's a, I, I love that. I really appreciate that. I thought I heard you say earlier that he did use a very old camera. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to double check that here because I was one of the things that was kidding me is that if it wasn't shot on an older camera that had a native aspect ratio closer to that, that if they if they actually were shooting in sixteen nine, also props for how good film looks. You know, there's something about film. And I should have known. You know, there, I knew there was no way it was digital. I knew it was at least film. There's mm. something so visually pleasing about the way that film actually comes out, yeah. as opposed to digital cameras. Um, yeah. But originally, I was wondering. You know, even if it was a 16:9 aspect ratio film, uh, somehow, I thought it'd be really interesting to because, like uh, Josh mentioned, there's a lot of really great framing in this movie. And in my mind, initially, I was like, man, if this was originally shot in a different aspect ratio and cut to this because they knew that's what they wanted, it would have made framing a much more interesting process because yeah. you'd have to frame with the understanding of what you were cutting. Well, so, I, I don't know. They said, according to Eggers, the idea of widescreen only came about in the 1950s, and this takes place before that, so they wanted to make sure that you know, it felt like it came out before then because it takes place in yeah. like 1890-something or early 1900s, yeah, sure. something like that. Yeah, and that dedication to the timepiece. I mean, that yeah. really, that's amazing. And they actually used um, 8K and 9K HMI lights because the natural light would not suffice for the colorization that he wanted for the black and white. <laughs> oh. that uh, That's not surprising. I was really curious because... Like Josh was mentioning, certain things looked almost too good. Like they were almost yeah. looked like they were composited on top. And I didn't think it was compositing, but I, it's part of why I thought maybe it was a more modern camera that was being cut down because some of the scenes were so well done that I'm assuming what they did was with that really crazy light, they were trying to really, really highlight uh, and, and get a good blowout on certain scenes so that it would really affect the way that scenes would look like on that old camera. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I love when there's a challenge that you really want to hit and you're doing really interesting stuff to make sure that you end up with the final product you wanted just from filming with as little post uh, processing editing as possible. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, to kind of. They went to great detail. They um sorry I'll let you finish one more thing, 
the lighthouse, like the actual light and the glass inside of it was from that era as well. And they totally built awesome. that lighthouse from scratch. Yeah. You have to destroy it. <laughs> Did they really? Yeah, it wasn't safe. It was made of all oh wood. Oh my god. So it's gone. <laughs> There's no evidence oh, like that actually happened. <laughs> Do you wonder what the insurance was like where they were like, hey guys, you know we have to get insurance for the actors. We're going to build a very old <laughs> rickety lighthouse oh my god. that is not safe at all. Um and we're going to have our actors do a bunch of crazy stuff within that. Is that cool, insurance company? And the insurance company was like, well, we probably need a little bit more information. And, and Eggers was just like, oh, it's cool. We Don't don't worry about it. We've got it. Thanks. He's gonna yeah, we're going to have Robert shoes. Pattinson carry a heavy steel drum up a really long set of spiral stairs. And then bring it back down. You, yeah. I know this sounds crazy, but with this much dedication, right? With this much dedication right. to the time period and the timepiece and trying to make things look as accurate and willing as possible, I almost wonder if he's one of those directors that legitimately made him carry not an empty <laughs> fake prop lightweight version of that big thing up. Mm. I wonder if that was a 100% literal filled container of kerosene that he had to move up that to make sure that it added to the effect of looking like somebody actually doing that act well, because it did look say. very yeah. convincing. Yeah, it looked like it was and it was like hitting like it was and obviously they can add sound effects later, you know, but sure. But yeah, it, it looked like it. I mean, it had to have something in it if not full, you know. I mean, I guess that's possible. I just I get uncomfortable watching that scene because I just think of like what if as you get it to that step it tilts a little and you fall over the front of it and then fall down the whole flight of stairs. <laughs> and then it chases you down too. Yeah. You, you get donkey it's, conged. It's weird that you've just added a level of uncomfort to that scene beyond just the uncomfort of having to carry that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know that I would have ever naturally landed on that being a thing, but I could totally almost see it maybe being a back thought in someone's mind that was purposeful. I mean, I'm also highly neurotic, so... <laughs> um, I do want to kind of uh, tie into what we were just talking about while also leading into us kind of talking about our favorite scenes since we've gone over a lot of this. And I think it, it also kind of naturally uh, lands on us talking about the finale of the movie and our thoughts on it. Uh, one thing I loved about, especially my first viewing, which was in a theater, just the, just the sheer intensity of... The, you know, the climax of the movie of him, uh, you know, finally arriving to the top of the lighthouse and reaching in and this sort of oddly, like, I don't know what to compare it to other than like 2001 A Space Odyssey, where it just fully goes to 11 of like euphoric insanity and to the point where even the medium of the film itself is played with and like the whole shot gets completely blown out. The audio is horrifically distorted. Um, I love stuff like that where you kind of mm. bend the rules of the medium to just really accentuate moments in it to just make it feel like it's it's bigger than just watching a thing on a screen but it's like holy fuck like I I feel like yeah. the projector could burst into flames at any moment. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, I, that was something that I I love that sort of thing in any art medium so that that part in the movie really just set it over the top for me. You know what I loved about that scene? 
and I wonder if I'm the only person that felt this way in particular. Uh, but I actually I agree that I love the aspect of blowing the audio out really like the the light had such a highlight too. So not only were you getting an audio blowout, you were almost getting a visual blowout because it's like how bright everything was in a movie that's otherwise not bright very often. Um, but what I loved about it is it's it seems to me like you know the whole movie it's a, like. It, this should be a victorious moment. Him getting to the top of the lighthouse should be the, this is what he's been wanting to do this whole time. You know, From the beginning of the very first dialogue, it is told, you do not go into the lighthouse, the light is mine. Or you don't go to the light specifically, the light is mine. And you see the scene of him trying to steal the keys and you see all this stuff going back and forth, back and forth. You see him constantly going up and looking and trying to see what's going on up there. And then when he finally gets there, it's not a moment of victory or anything at all. Instead, it's just like, hey, you know what? We're going to blow the audio out, blow the video out. And not only is Robert Pattinson's character not going to feel any sense of uh, of reward or victor- a victory, you're also not going to feel any sense of anything other than kind of like a, a, a like an anguish almost yeah and, and then i mean the light like rejects him i'm just gonna go ahead and dive into my ridiculous theory about this movie please Is do that, you know so the light blinds him or whatever and he falls and his it sounded like he broke his ankles when he landed mm. and then rolled down the stairs and then it okay. cut and he's laying on the rocks being eaten by seagulls right Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that, and the the camera zooms out right pretty far, and we don't see any buildings, we don't see the lighthouse or anything. So my theory about this movie is that he was stranded on like a small island, and that all of this was a dream, and he's just being eaten by seagulls. Mm. Okay. Uh, now we're back into themes territory. <laughs> it's not so much that it's tied into exactly what you just said though I do find that interesting. Like, I, I don't think that's a crazy take. Like, you know, for as much as this movie essentially makes you think that maybe none of it's happening, that's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to come to. You know what I mean? Um, but what you did bring up that I was originally not going to touch on, but you know what? Now I'm going to because I, I do purposely, I, I personally find this super interesting, um, is that the ending of the movie, the big finale, uh, you... Like, like you're talking about, you see him fall and then you see him being eaten by seagulls. Now, of course, you have a little bit of uh, dramatic irony in the sense of, you know, he brutally murdered the one and now they're all brutally murdering him. But something I thought was much more interesting than that very surface level thing is that throughout the whole film, the movie has lots of mentions and nods toward Greek and Roman gods, specifically from Willem Dafoe. Uh, he's he, he's sitting there at different parts and he's being like, you know, uh, Poseidon will, will lay his thunder down on you and all these different things. You know, they're constantly going through that and you see a lot of nods to that. And for the final scene to have Robert Pattinson's character being eaten alive by the Gulls, Gulls seems to me like it could be a potential tie-in to the story of Prometheus, yes. which I don't know how much y'all know about Greek mythology, but he gave humanity civilization by way of fire. That's the first thing. Fire and the lighthouse are clearly, you know, fire people view as light. It's one of the, one of the things you do from that. So the lighthouse could be emblematic of fire. Uh, And this is all a weird throwback to pulling in the Greek story of Prometheus to this. Uh, Mm. Now, 
how that ties in or how that could tie in specifically to Robert Pattinson's character because I'm not sure because Prometheus was essentially punished to be eaten every day. Um, his liver would be eaten by uh, a bird, an eagle in this sense, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or a, a vulture, maybe. I can't even remember the exact bird. Uh, uh, but his liver would be maybe. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. A raven or mm-hmm. something like that. Anyway, um, his liver would be eaten every day, and then he would it would grow back, and he'd have to suffer this every day. Uh, whether this is a deep tie-in or just an interesting visual tie-in to the whole movie and, the, and tying back into, of course, uh, sailors having a strong Greek and Roman connection to the mythology, I'm unsure, but I thought that was a really interesting thing to pull in. I, I don't. It immediately struck me as soon as he yeah. fell down, and you see the e- seagulls eating him. My mind skipped immediately over the fact that it was the dramatic irony, and just went to, "Wow, you know, you just heard a lot of Willem Dafoe talking about all this stuff, and now we have a very odd Prometheus scene, which the Prometheus thing is also kind of meant to be like a you play too close to fire, you get burned metaphorically, right? <laughs> Dude, what's so. kind of interesting about that is if. Think about the story as him and Proteus, where mm. Proteus was mm-hmm. the one who held the fire, I believe, and then Prometheus is the one who stole it. And then, like you said, Prometheus ends up being eaten by the gulls, just like in the movie. So that's kind of what I, I completely agree with your take on that. I'm glad I wasn't alone in it, at least, because yeah. I was over here like, well, this is either going to sound really cool to people or really stupid. <laughs> no, it's definitely like... <laughs> an influence for sure on the movie because even the second that he the we see him we see uh pattinson watching getting into the lighthouse room quote-unquote stealing the fire after he kills uh defoe and then the next scene is him you know getting killed so i would have to completely agree yeah yeah, yeah the punishment for that act yeah yeah that's really interesting. I, I've always wanted to learn more about Greek mythology, and that, that's a really cool uh, thematic pickup for sure. Oh, man. Greek mythology is referenced so often in modern yeah. media. Uh, this movie just happens to be very on the nose with it by actually bringing it up and then being in a subject that naturally brushes up with Greek mm. mythology, uh, you know, with the idea of Neptune and Poseidon and all these gods that are constantly referenced in, in terms yeah. of the sea. So, yeah, I thought that was cool, but you will notice it in a bunch of other movies in a much different way. Normally, you'll see stories that are Greek parables being turned uh, and modernized in one way. Yeah. So, um one quick scene we would be remiss not to mention is Willem Dafoe's incredible monologue around the midway point that the midway point of the movie, uh, you know, where Robert Pattinson's character after the, their night of debaucherous drinking and, uh, you know, uh, they're just, they keep alternating between admitting secrets and talking to each other and fighting and dancing. And it's just, it's a really fun representation of what dudes do when they drink. (laughs) Um, oh, you like me, lobster. <laughs> Say you like me, lobster. <laughs> yeah, like that whole thing of it. I, I, I love this movie's dark sense of humor and where the humor comes from, just yeah. the total whiplash you get in transition from what these dudes are doing, where it's like, all right, we're just, we're drunk, we're kind of nodding off. And then he's like, you know, now he's suddenly really like uh, self conscious about what Robert Pattinson's character thinks about his cooking. And then, oh my God, just to see him go into this full, like, cursing you with all of the depths of, you know, an old 
man mm-hmm. who's been on the sea for his whole life and just like I, I believed it like i i kind of felt like okay the supernatural stuff is kind of fake but honestly in that scene especially first time seeing it in the theater i was just like okay willem dafoe might actually be poseidon incarnate <laughs> and i think this is like a binding curse that robert pattinson's going to hell now i mean maybe <laughs> yeah um in in speaking with scenes uh it, it, I also go towards the movie's use of very odd mm-hmm. humor to hit you. And a lot of it's not only just from the, the subject matter of what they're using it for, but also just the placement of it where it seems to come very quickly out of nowhere. Uh, one of the scenes that just really sticks with me and because I thought it was hilarious, but also very fitting to the story and what was going on. Like it also had thematic resonance is when you see Willem Dafoe, I mean, Willem, when you see Robert Pattinson carrying out the two waste bowls, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and the reason it, the reason it made me laugh is it's so drawn out. Like you see him (laughs) trekking so far to handle this and to do this. And he's doing it perfectly with no air. And suddenly at the very end, (laughs) <laughs> he goes to throw it and it just comes back in his face and what made me laugh so hard was just the the it's not even like a scream it was just like a blood curdling oh, like yeah it was essentially fuck yeah. but without yeah. saying fuck it was just, I love that <laughs> it, it made it great and, too, I don't know it cut it yes like, exactly it, it just cut yes. it was a perfectly yes. cut scream. a hard cut yeah you didn't even <laughs> that uh, you know that uh, you know yes. there's a there's a Twitter uh, there's a Twitter page yep, that's yep, perfectly yep. timed screams <laughs> or whatever cuts. I, I love that, so. and then immediately going into uh, him walking in to get chewed out again by Willem Dafoe, and him going, "You smell like shit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, any other scenes that stand out to uh, you guys, yeah. uh, Chris? Anything that stood out to you? Honestly, I was going to bring up the poop scene, but. <laughs> There's also um, the scene about the what's, and I loved that scene. That just what, yes, what, 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 what. what? That scene was fucking great. Um, <laughs> That's the trouble with you, <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also realistically the, my favorite scene is the, the goddamn farts. Goddamn farts oh is God. so fucking funny. You and your goddamn farts. <laughs> <laughs> Such a weird use of yeah, humor. The whole in the movie's movie, a fart you know? joke. Like if you think about it, the whole thing—he's farting throughout the whole fucking movie—and it just. <laughs> oh, the, the first character interaction that we genuinely see happening between them, like where we're, where it's 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 him farting yeah. and then pissing into yeah. a jar, <laughs> or you're pissing pissing into the the, the bowl. What a very odd way to to handle it. But you know, uh, <laughs> clearly that matters later well, what on. What an odd way for each of these actors to deliver career highlights in a movie filled with farts it's wild oh man uh any other scenes before we wrap up uh brett anything yeah one scene that i'm surprised nobody mentioned um before me i was kind of just gonna see if anybody Mm -hmm. else brought it up though it also ties into my like what the hell is this movie talking about or doing or anything it's it's a scene that's in the middle of a bunch of chaotic stuff going on clearly as the third act is just the whole movie um falling apart uh essentially in terms of the world of the characters um is really it's the whole string of scenes but it's such a badass scene that i feel like give <laughs> is given no explanation or thought after the fact 
of and it was in the trailer where you see a naked Willem Dafoe yep. with the light oh, shining yes. from his eyes down on Robert Pattinson too. who's kneeling. Mm. Dude, it's so, it's a gorgeous scene. First of all, it's framed incredibly. Yeah. It's very powerful and striking in the way it's presented. And it's just an overall like it's one of it's really probably the the highlight scene, and it's so damn mm-hmm. quick. So it's actually and it's never talked a about again by someone called Sasha Schneider. Okay, and it's a, a German. Okay. It says German on Google. I just googled it, but it's a German or Russian. She was or he was born in Russia, but they call him German. I don't know. Anyways, so that's where it came from, but I'm not really sure what the significance of that is besides maybe him just taking that idea and running with it a little bit so i'm not really sure of the backstory well, of like, that painting to know what it's a painting of does that make sense yeah yeah nor do i of course uh though it's a cool painting i mean you know it, clearly there's a little it's a little more stylistically done in the movie but um, right. i think that i as a standalone scene i think it still works in the context of the movie because it just lends more into that very odd we're gonna talk about and show a lot of very cryptic odd um cult like you know occult stuff mythical stuff and not really ever have it have any bearing outside of just acting as a reference point to the sanity of the two people And that's the scene I actually wrote down as well that I wanted to speak about because not only is that the eye the eye light I guess like mm-hmm. very striking but it's right after Pattinson like finds himself on the ground. Yeah. And I thought that was I mean, very weird. And then it goes from that scene to like Pattinson getting a rowboat or whatever and all of a sudden it's daytime like immediately. Mm. It was just mm-hmm. a very weird string of things going on that i wasn't sure like is it what was it was that real like what like i don't know that was like before it's like that was probably a dream that was probably a hallucination but this was one where i was like was that real because it went straight from that to him getting the rowboat it didn't go from him that to him waking up again you know what i mean yeah sure I think stylistically, like I said, it's it's so strong. But I I do almost want to double watch the movie and try and remember the exact scenes around it. Uh, partially because I I haven't had a chance to rewatch the movie since I uh, watched it about a week and a half ago. Uh, now, um, and it was just I am almost curious if there's you know the way I view and of course that's what what's great about art and what's really weird about this particular scene is that the scene is almost still. So it's interesting that it is based off of a painting because it's almost like a painting in the way it's structured yeah. in the movie because it's it's there's not a lot of motion it's very still it's quick you see it it evokes an emotion in you and then it leaves so it really acts as like a single piece of still art um, and the way that I view that like and and even viewing the singular painting as you've brought up and I decided to look it up I don't know why in my mind my immediate thought is that it is Willem Dafoe acting as a center of some form of knowledge that is being shined and beamed and enlightened to the other person. Uh, I'm almost curious if, and I really just don't genuinely know, I kind of want to go back, watch uh, at least within the context of those scenes, and see if there's any part where 
it's almost meant to be like there's something that Robert Pattinson either learns from a visual, something he sees or something he hears from Willis Dafoe's character that would act as that scene almost being like the enlightenment towards the occult maybe or something weird about that. Um, But yeah, it's a visually striking scene that I don't think you can easily forget. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is the highlight of the movie in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Blake, go ahead. Did you have uh, any other scenes to uh, to mention? Yeah, the one um, it's kind of a long one, and it might even be considered multiple scenes. But it starts with him making um, Willem Robert Pattinson. I say him, Robert Pattinson, making Willem Dafoe bark like a dog. <laughs> right, and then he walks him out <laughs> to the grave like a dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's and pretty then brutal. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And then him being buried alive and like chanting or singing or whatever he was doing while dirt was yeah. being thrown in his mouth. Like, just give that man a fucking Oscar. Like, come on. Absolutely. <laughs> Another scene that makes very little sense to me in the grand scheme of everything else going on. But yes, I think it, it was acted sense. superbly. Not necessarily the I burial, mean, but the makes, dog part. Because you know, yeah, no, the, the dog part, him a it, dog throughout the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, it, it, the the part that I'm speaking of that buried is alive. oddly like I is being buried alive while doing yeah. the chants. Like it's another one of those things that is brushed upon, and I'm like, what the fuck was the chant? Like, and and I get that in some senses, it is a nice to have a the movie have an aspect of. Uh, not answering all questions. I actually really like when movies don't answer every question, but there's some things that are almost like to the film's credit. It might be that that scene is so strong and so interesting to you because you never get to understand what was going on with Willem Dafoe's mm. character. I think that's the big reason I like the film so much overall is because I don't know what the fuck happened at all. <laughs> like with any of it, I yeah. have no idea. You know, very sure. few questions, if which is nice. Answered. Yeah, when you have movies that often these days always make sure that they wrap up on a in like a you know a nice tied yeah. little bow so that you can kind of understand everything. It is nice to get a movie no that's exposition dump. Not not only obtuse but just incredibly weird. Like and, and it leans into every aspect of that for better or worse, depending on the way you see it. But mm. yeah, I mean, uh, what. What Willem Dafoe's character was saying as he was being buried to me didn't feel out of place or anything. It just felt like if you're basically powerless in a situation and you're someone like him who seems to have, you know, a little bit of like an ego and like an idea of how things should be, won't you try to get your last word in? And I felt like that was him sort of in like a, almost like a testament to his faith of like, instead of it being like a particular religion, his faith is kind of like the ways of the sea and the folklore surrounding it. Yeah. So I felt like that was just sort of his like, if this is to be the last thing he ever does and says, it's him defiantly saying like, what I believe is right. What you are doing is incredibly wrong. You will be punished. And I, I stand mm. by my convictions even in death. Yep. Yeah. I yeah. agree with that. And I, I should say, I definitely don't think it was out of place. Uh, I just thought it was interesting because of the fact of you don't completely have an understanding or a grasp on what it is that he is mm. saying or chanting but it does give off the vibe of even in my potential dying breaths, this is the closest thing to an honorable 
like, and it, it's weird the way he's doing it. it. It doesn't seem necessarily cowardly. It almost seems like I am going to push mm-hmm. through and do yeah. this, uh, even when dirt is getting in my mouth. I'm going to continue. I'm going to yeah. continue. Uh, which again, props to Willem Dafoe, man. Yeah. Uh, that scene is so powerful because of that. It's like the fact that he was legitimately getting dirt in his mouth and just pushing through and pushing through because that's what the character that's what you would expect of the character is right. amazing you uh, get one yeah, speck of dirt it, in your it mouth definitely, it's just the end of the world and this man's getting <laughs> piles of it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly but to your point Josh it doesn't feel out of place for his character it's just another aspect of I wonder what it was that he was chanting like you know I, I it's it's kind of the balance that we get into and i think it's somewhat of a modern problem is that we expect everything to eventually have another entry or some kind of extra exposition that comes in the way of like a comic Mm -hmm. or uh, a a side movie or a series or something to where it's like oh that really weird interesting thing that was touched up on once oh well we're going to talk about that in like this third movie that may not be directly involved but it at least kind of act as a tie back to that there's something really nice to the original one-off approach to, hey, you know what? We're going to set up something that is very vague but interesting that holds your attention, but we're purposely not going to tell you everything about what it was. As long as it feels like it's something that the character would do, it ultimately doesn't matter what was being said, even though you're not completely clearly understanding it. Hmm. I don't know that I felt I it was without meaning, but I, I think I agree with the overall sentiment of what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, we've been talking about this movie for a good amount of time. Uh, are there any other thoughts you guys had before we kind of wrap this up and talk about some upcoming things? I'm Gucci. Yeah, I just wanted to say one more thing real quick. Um, you know, y'all already mentioned it, and I have a very, very small, if zero amount of knowledge on greek mythology but i've seen mm. a lot of people also on twitter and facebook and such talk about the greek mythology references in this movie so i just i wonder how much of this you know i don't know what y'all's expertise on it is or whatever but i wonder how much of the movie maybe we don't understand because we don't Absolutely. know some of that greek mythology that he probably studied to make this movie uh-huh I was thinking that always a possibility. I was thinking that as Brett mentioned it, like very much in line with the spirit of uh, our modern age of not having to linger on questions, but having them answered for us right away. I think that's something that I imagine maybe some people listening to this might uh, be more familiar with some of the, those source inspirations and have additional context that we don't. And I think that's cool too, because we can, we can discuss it from our point of knowing the movie just as like a kind of blind viewing. And then Blake, obviously you being a fan of this, you've spent a little bit more time kind of diving into the discourse and trying to understand more of what's behind it. Um, and that's, I, I think for future installments, for sure, that's something I want to do a little bit more of personally. I'll probably dig up a little bit of interesting trivia. Cause I really love every single thing that you guys have mentioned about that, like the painting and like the Greek mythology references, like, I, I live for that kind of stuff. Yeah, same here. Mm. I um, yeah. yeah, it interests me. I mean, even just down to like, I mean, we already discussed it, so not to hash it back up, but just one painting is one scene in this movie. I wonder how many scenes are just different paintings from different points in history, or mm. if that's maybe the only one. Mm. I mean, who knows? But it's just interesting yeah. to think about. That would be really interesting. My last real words about the mm-hmm. movie uh, that I feel like I've probably expressed throughout this episode in some way, but I think the cleanest way for me to wrap it up is that 
the movie is engaging as hell but it's almost too abstract in its execution to follow in a way that will make it stick with me for anything more than its stylistic presentation mm. as the main point. Sure. Like most of the things I take away from this movie are just aimed particularly at how damn stylistic it is. And I mean that that movie deserves a lot of credit for being just visually unparalleled yeah. in the way it chooses to look and present itself. And if nothing else, the abstract nature of it at least made for a fun and engaging film, even if two years from now the main thing I take away from it is just how great the the visual styling and you know presentation was. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, cool guys. Unless anyone uh, has any objections, uh, I pronounce this uh, film and podcast. God, that was a dumb joke. Um, Husband and wife? Yeah. Where were you going with that? <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of going with that, I guess. But I, I, So I, I was picturing that scene at the end of Wayne's World where he's like at the top of like the chapel looking down on the wedding with like Rob Lowe. Yeah. I forget the actress's <laughs> name. Um, anyway, that's a non sequitur for sure. Cool. Uh, I've really enjoyed discussing this movie with you guys. It's been cool hearing everyone's different perspectives and uh, hearing how much uh, just total sluts we are for visually appealing things, even if they don't always make sense to us. Yeah. Um, I think we should get into uh, informing anyone who's listened to an hour and 54 minutes of us talking uh, what they can look forward to in the following week. Uh, Chris, would you like to inform our listeners of which movie? We're going to watch next week. Yeah, we are watching uh, the Belko experiment. Yes, Hell yeah. interesting movie for sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm super excited for this. Um, I personally chose this one uh, as for now. As we are starting, we're kind of uh, rotating. One person picks the movie, and we'll just keep going through us. Uh, so this week came up on me, uh, and I've I've been super interested in this movie and the idea, even if it doesn't necessarily live up to the long running hype of it i think the idea of the movie is interesting enough to kind of give you that well hey at the end of the day even if it's not the most amazing movie it was a really interesting take yeah. on it so i'm glad that each of us besides i think chris have not seen the movie i haven't actually watched right? it i just bought it <laughs> mm. oh, okay yeah, well there we go it. we all go in fresh to a very interesting yeah, experience so cool. that's great Unless unless you guys have any other things or unless I can come up with any other unnecessary and bad reaches of jokes, uh, <laughs> I feel like that, that kind of concludes this episode of Midweek Matinee. Uh, Brett, do you have any sign-off notes about uh, our affiliates? <laughs> yeah, if you would like. Of course, this is in production with Nartech. Uh, so if you want to, you can head over and look at other things that we do. Uh, I, myself, and uh, my other part, Saul, uh, do a weekly gaming podcast uh, called Triangle Squared. It is viewed through the lens of being PlayStation fans, but we do talk fairly about all of gaming and the console stuff. I think Blake can attest to that. Uh, I would consider us, if nothing else, very yeah, fair people. Sure. Uh, and of course... We have some other stuff going on there, so this is just another viewpoint of that, and we are glad to welcome Josh, Figs, and uh, and Blake into the fold of Nartech. So appreciate it, guys, and I think that's a good wrap. So Adios, we'll see you all next week. Right. Peace out. Toodles. Goddamn farts.
thing I've ever come up with in my okay. life, and I loved it. It was called uh, the Centarpede, <laughs> and it was going to be multiple centaurs sewn ass to mouth, which is more funny because then you have to determine <laughs> since centaurs, since centaurs asses like when even when they're down, yeah. you have to deal with their body shape. They're like a huge animal. Right. So either every centaur has to be leaned down to be sewn ass to mouth, or they have to be standing straight up in their natural position. But every subsequent from from the back starting, every subsequent centaur has to be on stilts. <laughs> or you could have just had a centaur pyramid. That, that also would have been good. But I just really love the idea that the name centaurpede. No, exactly. Uh, the human centaurpede. So yeah. I, I debated doing that, but I mean, by nature, a centaur is already part human. Yeah, mm-hmm. fair. I so I feel like centaurpede is somebody that I'm going to get killed by in Modern Warfare too. 